Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, again. Uh, welcome back. Uh, as I like to do, I like to tell a, a story to open these podcasts that sort of relates to the guest I have. And um, the guest I have today, uh, DJ Nash, uh, started, uh, at least from my recollection in terms of New York, as a stand-up comic at uh, a club that I own called the Boston Comedy Club. And... What happened when I started the Boston was is very interesting. Um, there was a comedian named Eddie Brill who was from uh, Emerson College in Boston, and I knew him. Uh, he went to school, I believe, with Leary and Stephen Wright, and I knew him in the Boston scene. He had gone down to New York, and he opened up a comedy club that I believe he called Only Joking, and then uh, it had other incarnations of names, and... He wanted to move to L.A. and make it in L.A., and he he left L.A., and I asked him if I could take over the comedy club. It was on West 3rd Street in Greenwich Village between Thompson and Sullivan, about a block from Washington Square Park, right next to the firehouse where Anderson Cooper now lives and the famous Italian restaurant Il Molino. So I go and I meet with the owners, and they say, uh, that's great, we'd love to have you, Barry, but... um, Another guy has taken over the club. Uh, I'm sorry. And that guy who took over the club was Rick Messina. And um, Rick Messina was partners with a guy named Tony Camacho. Rick Messina, for those of you who don't know, is the manager of Drew Carey and uh, Tim Allen, um, along with um, 
his partner. So I uh, am really bummed out. And so I waited out and the club is failing. And I call Rick and I say, listen, Rick, can I, can I take over the club? You don't need this. You're booking a ton of stuff in New York. And he said, you're right, Barry, I don't. Just to give me back the sound system that's in there and you can take it over. And so I sold the owners of the this pub, the concept of the Boston Comedy Club in New York City. A brilliant idea at the time, <laughs> but clearly uh, not that brilliant in terms of that because everybody hated Boston. New Yorkers hated Boston. <laughs> and this is in the late 80s, you know, when, you know, it's just the Boston teams lost to the Mets. It was just a, this is a bad concept. And I thought I'm going to bring down Boston comics and they're going to headline there and it's going to be great. And at the time I was just starting to manage people, but I couldn't manage comedians who made money because I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So I had to manage like teenagers who literally never did anything, never booked a gig, never made any money. But I had money from the clubs that I was doing in New England at the time when I moved from New England to to there. And so I go down and my first client I ever managed was Louis C.K. He's 18 years old. And he comes down to New York for the opening weekend. And I have all these Boston comics working on the opening weekend. I'm having people pass out flyers. And Louis C.K. is actually helping me run the wires in the club, get the mic stand ready, get the lighting proper, everything. And he hosted the first shows at the Boston Comedy Club. And an incredible uh, story about this is as things went, you know, it was hard to get people in, but it was the village and people walking around all the time. And one day this guy approached me and he said, listen, I work at the comedy cellar. I don't like it there. I want to work with you. And I guarantee I'll help make your club something special. My name is Lewis Schaefer, not gay. I said, excuse me? He said, my name's Louis Schaefer, not gay. <laughs> I said, okay, uh, uh, Louis, uh, how can you help me? I'm gonna, I guarantee I'll bring people in. I said, okay. He was a really interesting guy. He wore a blue blazer, a white Oxford shirt, a brown belt, jeans, and loafers. You know, and he had this look about him like he looked like Herb from accounting if he maybe was a child molester. He had that weird look about him. I said, okay, come back and uh, I'll ask about you. I asked around about him and he did bring a lot of people in. He came back the next night, check out the club. He's wearing a blue blazer, the white Oxford shirt, the brown belt, the jeans, and the shoes. I'm like, uh, do you... Do you, uh, do you, do you, do you wear anything else? He says, Barry, after this meeting, I want you to come with me. I said, okay, I'll come with you. I'll do whatever. I have a meeting with him. I like him. He's kind of cool, quirky. I go back to his place. He shows me his apartment in his closet, all blue blazers, all white Oxford shirts, all brown belts, all jeans and the shoes. I say, that's a little odd, though, Lewis. It's a little crazy. He says, Barry, I am Lewis Schaefer, not gay, and I will help you turn your club around. And he reaches into his pocket and he hands me a business card. 
And he says, call me. I look at the business card. It is a white piece of paper shaped like a business card with a quarter scotch tape to the business card and handwritten Louis Schaefer, not gay, call me with no number. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. My guest today, I'd love to introduce to you people. I'm so happy to have him here is DJ Nash. Let me explain a little bit about this man before he starts talking, just to let you know, to put this in perspective. I've known this guy for a while, probably more years than I can count because of his comedy prowess in New York at the uh, Boston Comedy Club and all around. But why I really was excited about having him here is that, you know, here I'm sitting across from a guy who started as a stand-up comic, uh, knew that he wanted to do stand-up and be in the business at a very young age. And um, because of his great work in comedy, he was chosen by the prestigious Montreal just for Laughs Festival to go up there and be a new face. And during that time, he, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he was voted the best new face of the festival. And then he went on to um, get a pilot, which I uh, was involved with uh, briefly because I represented Bert Kreischer at the time, who was cast in the pilot uh, about David's life called Life with David J. He went on to write for NBC Traffic Light for Bent, uh, Bent for NBC Traffic Light for Fox. He created Let It Go, starring Zachary Levy uh, for Fox, for Sony Studios and Peter Tolan's company. And then he just served as an executive producer for NBC Comedy Up All Night, and he got a two-year overall deal there. And most excitedly, he just did a pilot called Growing Up Fisher with J.K. Simmons, and it's going to star Jenna Elfman, voiced by Jason Bateman. It's going to air on NBC after The Voice in uh, 2014. Very excited and honored to have you here, DJ Nash. Barry, the story you told at the beginning... Assuming we still have listeners, <laughs> that, the end of that story I told my buddy Alex on the drive over here, which was Lewis wanted the show the club seven nights a week. He wanted the club he seven the nights club seven nights a week. He wanted this club, but on Monday nights I hosted uh, a new fa- um, a, a, like new comics night. You had a, br- a bringer show, and the way it worked back then, because you know, like who's going to Barry's club <laughs> on a Monday? Now, who's going to a comedy on a Monday? We'd have to bark people in. We'd stand on the street. Hey, come on in, comedy, comedy. That's where Lewis was great. Not gay, not gay. Don't test me. You know, like, yeah. So, yeah. And so we, um, I said to you, I said, I have this bringer night. New comics get on stage. They have to bring four people to get up, and it's this vibe that's cool. Your clients, I put three of your clients up every week. They get a great audience on a Monday night before you give up the club. 
before you give Lois the show seven nights a week, just come watch it once. And you came by and you, oh man, it's unbelievable what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> and you, it was great. You had, you gave me, let me, let me tell you about DJ Nash. Let me just, let me just take I don't a really sound like that, you do I? You totally do, man. What's unbelievable. <laughs> I had this club, I called it the Boston, but it was in New York. What the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> but um, we had, um, now, before you took yeah. over, now I started this club in 88, and I believe my first uh, person who ran the Monday Night Show, and I could be wrong, was Kevin Brennan, and oh. then it was Dave Attell, oh, wow. okay. and then it went on to then where you... Then it got shitty. <laughs> no, no. But um, when I got there, so I had, I had finished college, I moved to New York to do stand-up, and here's some names from our past. Angelo Vazios was managing the club for you, and I, it, I think the shows would start at 8 on Monday, or every night it would start at 8, but we'd open up at 7 and start barking. And one night, Angelo was running late because, oh, who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. And he said, hey, the keys are down with the, the, the bag it in. Get the keys from Tom. Come on up. The Bag It In, this was the yeah. name of the club. It was, a, just to put in perspective, in the village, there was a downstairs that was a Irish pub run by an Irish group of people uh, who were really incredibly supportive of me, Tom O'Byrne and uh, a few other people. And then upstairs Jews. was the comedy Tons club. Tons of Jews. Tons of Jews, <laughs> yeah. that's right. And, um, and so I opened the club, and then I, I think I, I got – that was my first stage time in New York City was at your club. And then – Which makes me feel wonderful because – you know, I, And I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to give people the stage time that they couldn't get at the other clubs. That, I, that club – got me ready to perform at real comedy clubs. <laughs> <laughs> Just to put in perspective, yeah. those of you who've never attended the Boston Comedy Club, it was sort of like, uh, it looked like Anne Frank's Comedy Attic, it basically. Was, it it was, was, what, did, what did Voss call it? Like, like it was like a ski lodge for crackheads? <laughs> a ski lodge like, for yeah, crackheads. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was this club. And, and you had comics like Voss came in, and, and Ch- but then you had like Chappelle and who else? D- Dane, obviously Dane was there. Yeah. All your clients were there. Um, but Attell would come. It just, it was amazing. It was just amazing. And then on Monday nights, it was this really great opportunity for new comics to take the stage and be supported as they're doing this terrifying thing of doing comedy for the first time. But at the beginning of the show, it would be like Gaffigan would be up most nights. And then, yeah. uh, Chappelle, Dane, we had, um, there's this great, I mean, it was, it was, it was I look back now, on that time. It was now you, you started this open. It was unbelievable, man! That time <laughs> of my life, I'm telling you. So you, you start your own coasters, man. This is the sign of success. I don't. You see this? <laughs> when you have your own dick coaster, <laughs> what the hell is? It? I am so aroused by my own business. <laughs> This, what these these are my balls, which are just as long as my dick, <laughs> and these are other balls I have. These are my low balls. Yeah, really. These are my high balls, <laughs> and I've sworn now really more than did. I ever have on stage. So <laughs> the sign of success yeah. is coasters. It's the coasters. sign of success is, is spending four dollars yeah. and seventy six cents for a coaster. We called Vista Prince, and we said, "No, we don't want business cards." <laughs> For your seven ninety nine plus shipping, we would like cork coast. These are great. I'm, t- I'm, I'm, t- I'm taking this. Mine now. <laughs> that is your gift for today. Oh my god, he took my coaster. I'm gonna have to order more now. Mm-hmm. This is unbelievable. Okay. Um, let's talk about the. First of all, before we get into the sure. open mic night at the Boston, yeah, because I know you started doing comedy when you were fifteen. Fifteen. Where was that? I went to this private school. My parents, my mom, just education was very important to her. And so I went to this private school right outside of Boston, 
What was the name of Milton it? Milton Academy. Milton. Milton Academy. Was that in Milton, Massachusetts? It was in Milton, Massachusetts. I think uh, one, the Kennedys went there. It was a very – and then us. But um, And then they um, – this band was performing on the weekends. There would be um, these open houses. Each residence hall or dorm would have an open house and these bands would play – bands from the school. And one of the bands, uh, I think it was like Blind Dog Whiskey, um, was taking a set break and they said, hey, DJ, do you want to do – 10 minutes in between the set break, you know, and, and as, but why would they say that if you had never done, I never done it, but they knew that I joked around in the hallway. They, they knew that I, um, had a sense of humor. I just didn't have, so a, they asked you to go on before or during the breaks, of the band in the middle, the band was going to do now, two just sets. to let, just to let sure. you guys know this. Yes. Cause I think this is important for yeah. you guys to understand this. When, when I was booking uh shows in new England, uh, before I came to New York and then LA, the main thing that people wanted to do in the beginning is they thought, okay, we have a band. <laughs> okay, so the band is doing three sets. Let's see. So the band of the first set, and then we can put a comic on during the break of the first set. Because nothing gets you ready for comedy Because nothing gets you more. ready for comedy more than the fucking loud. rock and roll band. Yeah. And then, then we'll put on the band again. Then we'll put on a comedian in the next break. What's better than Aerosmith? Aerosmith, Robin Williams, more Aerosmith. <laughs> And the fatal flaw in this is that when you listen to a band, you're standing and you're not talking to anybody because you can't talk to anybody. So even if you're with somebody you want, you're on a date, you can't talk, they can't hear you. So when do you have time to talk? During the break. So a comedian would go on during the break and it would be like an A-bomb victim from Nagasaki. It would just be nothing. It would be crickets or people would be talking, the worst sets ever. And people had this idea that this was the way to use comedy in the beginning. And so here you are, your and first the only, thing. like Venn diagram, but the only crossover between who goes to a rock show and who goes to a comedy show is people who'd rather be sleeping with the person they brought. Like that was the only <laughs> common thing. It was like, we, we, I don't want the man. I don't want the comedy. I just want to have sex with this girl and I can't. So let's listen to the comedy. So you go on in between the band. Do you die a miserable death? No, or? that's the problem. It was like gambling. If I died a miserable death, I would have stopped it. But I had, I won the first time out. That's amazing. I, I remember the set. I remember there was a, I did some joke. Do we care? Do you want, you want to hear the joke? Of course. Okay, okay, okay. This is important. Seems, okay, it's very for, important. For comedians yes. listening, I think it's important to see how, how things started. these first jokes were, but I remember them. There was a joke I had where I would ask a question to the audience, like, ask me if I'm sarcastic, and you'd say... Are you sarcastic? No. Or so, so, right, something like that, right? And so one of the questions, and I, I had like a, a, a six of them or whatever, and I said to one of the teachers there who was there with his wife, and I said to his wife, his wife, um, it was Bob Gilpin was the teacher, and his, his wife, Louise Gilpin, I said, ask me if I put out. And I was, you know, did you put out? Yeah. That was the, the funny answer was I do. And I said, um, ask me if I put out. And she said, uh, are you put out? <laughs> and the whole audience laughs and Gilpin, my, the teacher is like, ah, oh, dude, hi, what are you going to do? I was like, yeah, I'm not the one who's married to a woman who doesn't know what put out means. And it was <laughs> huge. I mean, it was huge. The, the, the joke I was going to tell was crap, but this was like in the moment live happening. And so then every show thereafter, you had a plant in the audience yes, saying, how do we get back to that moment. <laughs> and what was great about that show, I remember there was a, a joke I did that night and on Monday morning. And you're 15. How old are you? Uh, sophomore in high school. How old? Yeah, are you? like fifteen. Yeah. And I was eighteen, but I stayed back a bunch. No, uh, I, uh, I, Monday morning, I'm walking through the hallway, and I heard someone tell a joke. And you know how sometimes you hear a joke that's familiar, like, "Oh, I know that joke," and it was my joke. 
from that set. Wow. A different joke. And I was like, oh, that feeling was – that was better than any applause. The, the idea that Monday morning – Someone was retelling that joke was incredible. And you say that, and I, I want to just interrupt yeah. here because if you're a comedian listening or any kind of artist listening, that's one of the greatest gifts you can ever have is that if somebody can is talking about your material and saying your material and repeating it back to people. I was just with um, a comedian named Jay Chris Newberg who did his debut on The Tonight Show recently, and somebody from the show, like – called him and said i have to tell you this i was in the hallway and jay lena was walking with some of the producers and he was reciting two jokes about jay chris newberg wow, from the show and so when you can have that that's the biggest thing so right away you're receiving the validation this is before the internet so this is the way it worked yeah. back then you <laughs> got the validation from other people who told other people who told other people the biggest validation i have now about in, in comedy is besides this podcast this is i mean this is, i got the coaster i got a bottle of no name what you don't what you're worried about endorsements you're worried that you'll lose the poland spring account what's happening i, I was worried well, it's okay um if you place your name here for four dollars <laughs> and then pay eight to have it removed that's a great but, idea um, yeah uh so uh anyway the the biggest the greatest thing is um if someone is in a situation later and thinks about that moment I created earlier, whether it was in a joke back in the day or whether it's in a script now, if you're in a situation and you're thinking about that moment I created, that that's huge. That's the best. Yeah. So so keep going with this okay. theme here. So you so you do that band thing. Then where do you start doing stand up without bands? Okay. So I did a bunch of shows at high school and 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 at my high school, and most of those shows were me making fun of the teachers and the people we all knew. So there was this common language that we all had, you know, like, like everybody here laughed at the impression of you more than, than someone who wouldn't know you. And so what I realized was how do I, how do I get that again? And so I started performing at colleges and I realized even though I don't know the college, they all know the college. So I could figure out things about every college. I could figure out, I could figure out, specific things about this college sort of the way a little bit the way bob hope would put that line in to say you know what's the crappy diner and would put that in his set you know bob hope in the day would go into a town and he would know that there's a, a restaurant that's always the butt of the joke or there's a sports team that's not great and he would sort of tailor tailor the, tailor the show that thing hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, 
and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And this is what's also uh, uh, amazing about you, what you, you, you've done, and we're going to get to so many things that you've done. What David did, he started doing comedy, and then he identified that the colleges would be a way where he could do shows. There'd be no pressure at all. None. No one in the industry would see him, and he would be able to build up an hour of material so that when it was time for him to go into the clubs in New York, he would blow people the fuck away. So he starts doing the colleges, and he starts showcasing at these college conventions. And if I'm not mistaken, you become one of the most popular college comedians of the time. You used to do like a hundred shows 100 a shows year. A year. And what I realized, Barry, is and now, and making, now and, I can and, tell all the secrets because I'm not doing and, it anymore. And making money like that. And even even the shittiest money in a college was like $750 a show. And you block book 100 shows and you're a young guy and you're making seventy five dollars to $100,000, $150,000 a year. And it's like before you know it, you have money in your bank account that none of your friends have. And it's just it's unbelievable. Incredible. And all the other comics are struggling because they're they're in the clubs in New York making like seven dollars a set, and they might be getting their prestige or whatever, but they don't have money and they're not building up their hour because they're only doing twenty minutes. I, and I think both are important because I think the clubs kept me honest. At a college show, I could do jokes that were about them, and it was maybe not um, jokes that had the level that I'd want an industry to see, cutting edge, or you know, just things that were. For me, it was about defining who I was, what my comic, who am I is, and building an act out from there. And one of the it's, toughest yeah. transitions for a comic is doing the colleges and being able to come from that and seamlessly make the transfer into the clubs and then creating writing. I will tell you this, and I, I'm sad to know how long I've been doing this. I can't think of one other comedian who was huge in the colleges that has made the progression that you've made. Normally, college comedians, it's like heroin. They get stuck there. They do it. They do these shows. It's almost like doing cruise ships. Dane. Dane, Dane, Dane was unbelievable. There's, there's Un a, unbelievable. That is a good example. Unbelievable. He, but he, he was... didn't, but he didn't do, he didn't do as many colleges as you think he did. You were like the, you were like nominated for the national college. No, what I realized, this is what I realized. If I go, I can tell, I was like, I've never, these are like the, this is how Coca-Cola is made. But, um, if I went to do the NACACs or whatever those ACACs were that you, you the National uh, Association of College Activities, NACA is the big college, uh, um, circuit for comedians. They have, uh, showcases all around the country in different regions and all the schools go and comedians, um, a vie to perform at those, they get chosen, and then uh, if they want you, they come to these booths and they sign you up. And, and if you, you pay to go to these things. You pay. You pay quite a bit of money. Yeah. I don't even know. I only did, I think, two of those. because Between the fees and the hotels and the travel, you can pay between a 1000 to $1,500 to go. And then, but if you get the schools, it's amazing. Yeah, but what I found is, yes, you're gonna you're up against ten other comics that weekend. You know, there's ten comics performing, and there's these booths. And if you get this guy and that guy, it's this much money. I found, well, I don't want to make seven fifty for a college show. I want to make more than that. So, and I'm clean, and I'm doing stuff about your school. So I would send flyers out to admissions offices. I never went to student activities. I went to the admissions offices and I said, hey, you have orientation in the fall. You have orientation in the fall. 
you know how you're worried about having your job on Monday? Give me the job on Saturday. You'll have your job on Monday. I'm a clean comic. I'm not going to say anything that's offensive. I'm not going to do whatever it takes for a laugh. I'm going to understand that you as an admissions are going to try to foster a certain thing here. So, and this, the shows were great. They just didn't involve things that were homophobic or racist. No. Just, and this yeah. is, and this is another example about how, if you're a performer, how you have to go the extra mile and you have to do the thing. Yes. There's examples of people who sleep all day and they go on stage and they are amazing and they get television and films and you say to yourself, wait a second, I'm, I'm doing things outside the box. They're just going on. But for the most part, when you do what you do and you go outside of it, again, people don't normally go that extra mile and do that extra thing and you did it and that's why you got the extra work and you went after and, and you did it's, it. And the schools have been so good to me. I mean, when, um, you know, to jump ahead to the, Show when you want that to jump ahead. Hello, to jump ahead to the show getting picked up. There are colleges I just called to say, "Hey, I just want you to know, thanks. You, you know, you, I, I have a show on the air now, and you made that possible. You, you did. You had me. I've been like Wellesley College. I've been to Wellesley College twelve times, which I'm sure you have too. But you were trying to hit on girls. But I went to do comedy, <laughs> and I got paid to be there. You got paid to leave. So the thing is, that's you know, I was a college comedian myself. I did a couple of colleges, but that's that's another story. But uh, let's do that story. Well, I started as a stand-up comic, uh, or at least you could maybe call me one. I don't know if you would call me one, but my uh, to talk about comedy and how to do it right or wrong. And then we're going to go sure. into the next thing. Sure. So I'm not going to go into the whole story now, but I, I, my inspiration in comedy was, um, Bob Newhart and I sure. love the driving instructor okay. routine. And, uh, and on another podcast, I'll talk about, uh, the whole story behind it. Um, <clears throat> so I went to an open mic night, uh, in Boston and I, cause I'd done this routine at my high school. And at my college, and I thought, oh, I'm going to try it in the comedy club. I go in the comedy club. I'm I'm about to be introduced by this guy whose name is the taxi driver, Ross Bickford. And it's a place called Crossroads. And I'm about to be introduced, and I was swimming at the time, and I had shaved my head, and I was pretty, you know, in good shape. And my first introduction was, this next guy is a very, very, very funny uh, gay comedian, I'm just kidding. He's not funny. Got a big laugh with that stock line. And he says, I'm just kidding, everybody. But I, I never seen this guy perform, but I know he's hung like a buffalo. Please welcome Barry Katz. That's my first introduction on stage. Yeah. And I'm like in horror because I'm not yeah. hung like a buffalo. Uh, so <laughs> you know, I, 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 I didn't want to lie yeah, to the okay, elements of whatever, whatever it is. Right. Uh, I may not have my humor, but I have my words. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I go on and I say, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to present to you uh, uh, um, a routine uh, from Bob Newhart's album, The Button Down Mind. It means a lot to me. And I did the routine. You did. Yeah. I did the entire routine. <laughs> and I said, thank you. And I noticed that I was doing better than Bob Newhart was on the album. You know, I was like, people were like laughing. They were applauding. It was killing. I finish. I get off stage and this guy chases me down, Ross Bickford. And, and this is how I knew what the right thing and the wrong thing to do in comedy. He says, kid, I don't know where you came from, but that was amazing. Let me give you some advice. Okay. I said, yeah, what is it? He said, listen. When you're doing somebody else's routine, don't say you're doing the routine. <laughs> Just take the fucking bit like I do. 
all my bits up there. I'm just rehashing them, taking them. No one will ever know. I said, okay, okay thank you. And I, that's when I knew I had to write my own material as when a comic. I was, when I was, I was casting a show, you know, when you are a writer on a show and it's your episode, you're in the casting session. So I'm in the casting session and this actor comes in who's a stand-up. And a guy I've known for years, I shake, him, I shake his hand. I hadn't seen him for a while. And he's like, oh, man. And he says to me, you used to do this bit about – and he does this whole bit that I used to do. And he goes, I love that bit. But he said it. He did it perfect. It was like you do it on the kills for you on the road. I understand what's happening. He, just, he was like, so, I remember that bit you used to do? And he remembered it more than I did. He didn't get the part, did he? No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He so can it, watch the other guy do it and then repeat what he did. He can do the same. There you yeah. go. So going back, he just, yes. so the colleges, you get big in the colleges. And it was so and, much and then fun. You make like, a, when, you so, club, when you do a club, I'm sorry, when you do a club in New York or anywhere, you know, there's... 72 comics who want on everyone is more known than you and you get seven dollars and half price drink or something and um and that's it when you go to a college show they were picking me up at the airport they wanted to take me out to dinner you're treated like royalty and 18 was, to 21 year old girls and that was and i was i started when i was wanting 15. to have your ankles started, in two different zip codes i started when i was younger than the college students my first gig ever was at a college was at simmons college in boston all women's college in boston my friend went there and i i hadn't started college yet i took a semester off to do stand up <clears throat> and i did the show for a sweatshirt and a dollar so and I said you have to be you have to if I which if, is more than you're getting for this podcast exactly well I'm, I don't know about the, the I'm taking a, getting a coaster <laughs> wait he took a second coaster <laughs> um, so he so but I just needed you to say you have to say that I got paid and you have to say I was great and that was this, I still have that sweatshirt the sweatshirt and the dollar yeah and then I mean and then I think by the time I was out of college I remember being um, I was going to senior year of college. And I booked a show in Vermont at a Col- Castleton State College for a thousand dollars. I broke a thousand dollars for the show. I was like, "This, this is great." I mean, so take me. So you I'm come. Assuming. So you come to New York after you've done a lot of the colleges. Yeah. What's the most amount of money you looked in your bank account one day from just colleges, and you were like? Oh my God, I, I can't believe this. I, I, I never made huge, like, I never made like Dane money at colleges, but, um, but I'm talking about after doing a hundred colleges and you, at the end of the year or at some point during the year, you're looking at your bank account when you're a young comic yeah. and you're only doing colleges. You're not known in the clubs. You have not one credit on television. Oh, but what, I, I hadn't, I wasn't doing a hundred colleges when I hadn't done the club. Like at that point, I may be doing 15 colleges. Uh huh. But before I moved to New York, I remember I wanted to save up a year's rent. I said, like, I, I don't want to ever have the business own me. I want to own the business. And so I didn't want, it was a very conscious effort that the year after college, I stayed home with my mom. I mean, it was, it, it'll be. That's a very important quote. Say that quote again. I stayed home with my I mom. I didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't want the, I didn't want the town to own me. I wanted to own the town. I, I, I it's absolutely right. And so I've never made a decision in this business. Based on money. And yet you're in the business because of money. I mean, that's why you work. That's why you do it. I, I mean, obviously I have passion for my art, but there's certain – you're making a decision to be paid for your art. Uh, but I never I, – I, there's a gig I took a few years ago that was 12 episodes on a show that went away. And I had the possibility to do 26 episodes on a returning show. And I turned that down to do 12 episodes on a show that I loved. I loved the pilot. I said, this is 
this is the closest thing to a show I would create that's on television now, and it's amazing. And do you want to tell the people what that show was? That show is Traffic Light, and it changed my life. I before that point, I'd, I'd been a multi-camera writer. I'd worked on shows that were shot multi-cam, which means um, now talk about sure. that for the audience: sure. uh, okay. multi-cam versus single cam. Typically speaking, multi-cam <laughs> is shot on one sound stage. There's about three standing sets every week, and uh, a couple swing sets every week. So if you go to the dentist's office in an episode, that can be a swing set. But there's standing sets. Everybody loves Raymond is a great example. All in the family. It took place in those living rooms. Um, Seinfeld was also multicam but had some sort of hybrid feels to it. Um and then a single camera show would be like um the mash is probably uh, the old school best example um shot with a single camera. Nowadays modern family for instance is a single camera show but it's shot with many cameras but it's still that same style where you you shoot at 360 and you're shooting reverse shots if I'm shooting over your shoulder to carry our conversation my con- my side of the conversation. Um but I in the town at that point, um, and this is back when comedy had dried up, writing for TV and comedy was – I entered the business at exactly the wrong time because there weren't jobs. There weren't shows. Well, let's <clears throat> yeah. well, let's go go back. Sure. So the first okay. show you ever experience on yes. television, you go to Montreal. Yes. You showcase for the Montreal Last Festival. Just yeah. the last one. Where do you showcase? I go up at in, – in, look, what's the name? It's – what's the – that big hall, the big hall where there's two floors and the industry is all upstairs. The, that I know, but yeah. where did you showcase to get the gig? Where oh, did they see where you? Did, I got it at Gotham. Gotham. And yep. who were some of the comedians on the show that didn't get it when you were? Oh, I, I, you know what? I don't remember who. Don't remember? I don't remember. I really don't. And who were some of the comedians who were the new faces I that went, year? I went with Orny. Orny I Adams. I was Orny Adams here. That name sounds familiar. <laughs> is he next week? Is he out there? No. Where is he? Orny's he's, here? He's, no. not, he's not well, in the lobby. I went the same year as Orny and uh, Tony Rock. So Tony that was Rock, the yeah. year of the documentary that I the did. Greatest, do, have we, have we, no, we're fine. Don't worry about it. Are we um, – But are, are we um, – have you told uh, – did they know this? You have the greatest line in that movie. The movie comedian um, buries in the – I, I, I own the movie and I sometimes just watch your scene. And it's not a weird sexual thing always. But uh, there's, a scene, <laughs> there's a scene in it where you – you're talking to Orny and you're, and you give great advice. And I love, I, I love Orny. Orny and I, what we did stand up in Boston together. We stand up in New York together, but you give him some of the most, he, I think he's starting to follow that advice now, years later. But your advice to him is don't let your comedy talk for yourself is basically what you're saying. Look at someone, look at someone like Stephen Wright, man. <laughs> look at Stephen Wright. He doesn't get up there and tell stuff. He just does his jokes. And Orny says, um, Oh, thanks, Barry. And you go, he won. Where is he now? And you, he, you go, uh, he won an Oscar. And <laughs> Orny goes, for what? And you go, for a movie. <laughs> <laughs> the appointments of Dennis Jennings. <laughs> yeah, but you said for a movie. It didn't matter. <laughs> I said for an Oscar. It doesn't matter. But um, uh, yeah, that festival, that, that, that. <laughs> You have an Oscar. You don't need to say for what. You have an Oscar. If you also I didn't have know an Oscar, I was going to be if filmed. two people have Oscars, you can go, oh, what's your Oscar for? I just, one I just walked into a dressing room. There's yeah. a camera and they yeah. got me in. It's yeah. A- yeah. But I was that year and um, there was a lot of attention on Orny at the beginning. And what happened is New Faces was three performances. There were three different groups of New Faces, eight comics to a show. So it was 24 comics. A lot of math in this show. I told there'd be no math. But um, there – the first night, groups one and two went up. The second night, groups three and one went up. And the third night, groups two and three go up. So I was group three. So the first night, I don't perform. I just watch. And my set, at that point, I was at colleges doing college shows, but on stage at clubs in New York, I was building an act about – I was showing the show. 
That's what I was doing. And basically what a lot of comedians uh, try to do who want to do television is they try to figure out a way to, they try to look towards the future and yep. figure out how to build a stand-up act that's the quote-unquote point of view. Because all people in this town, that's all they want from a comedian who does a television show. Does he have a point of view? Yes. And, and sometimes uh, people like that do what you did are, if you'll oblige me, less respected for doing that because there's the guys who gutted out in the clubs. Like when I talked to Steve Harvey, I'll never forget the first time I talked to him and I invited him to do a um, sort of like a, I don't know what you call it, a talk at the club for comedians. Mm -hmm. And the place was packed with comedians. And the first thing he said was, he said, a lot of comedians I'm looking out here, you guys are comics. I'm a comedian. And he said, you want to know what a comic is? A comic is a guy who always thinking about is how do I develop this act that's going to get the Hollywood people look at me so I can get a development deal and I can get on television and I don't have to worry about this comedy thing mm -hmm. anymore. I'm a comedian. I don't care about anything having to do with being on television all i care about is being funny i go on stage i want to hear one thing ladies and gentlemen please welcome steve harvey and if i'm great they're going to come and see me and they're going to find me and i'm going to have my own show now i don't agree with uh this in terms of you because you were the kind of guy that was a rare breed and that's why i'm so glad to have you on here you were always thinking ahead. You knew what you wanted. You knew the things that you wanted and how you wanted them from a very early age, from 15. And a lot of people, they don't know, and they're like, how do I take a shortcut? It wasn't you taking a shortcut. It was you with a business mind saying, okay, I want to be a stand-up. I want to write. I want to create. I want my own show, and I want to do it all. I, and wanted, I went to Montreal wanting to get a sitcom. And I love stand up. I, I, you know, you kind of referred to me as I did stand up in the past. I, that's the next to like dad and husband. It's the identity I'm most proud of. I'm more proud of being a stand up than I am being a writer. Like it's a community that I'm part of. I love those guys. And this was really tight. And it's was an incredible, it set me up for everything I have now. It did set you up for everything you did now. But let's, let's talk about this because if comedy, is that important to you mm -hmm. and it means so much to you? Why did you stop after you did your first show? I um, still well, do stand up occasionally, but in the way, the way you're talking, I'm not doing 100 dates a year like I was. At one well, point, I would think I was doing 250 dates a year. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, when I did, so after Montreal, I get this pilot and I am. I'm co-writing it and I'm acting in it. It's Life with David J. Yeah, and who yeah. are you co-writing it with? I wrote it with Jeff Strauss. He was uh, a writer from Friends. And he, he used to write with his writing yeah, partner. Jeff Greenstein. Yeah. I, I never uh, met Jeff, but I met Jeff. And um, so we wrote this pilot together. I, I went to the Laugh Factory out here. I was flown out by CBS. We want to do a pilot with you. Let's look for a showrunner. And I do stand up at the Laugh Factory. And so the key, I'm going to interrupt. So he goes to Montreal and... Again, he's there with 24 other comedians. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. this is what every artist is faced with in the business or ever, any executive or in any job. Wherever you are, there's going to be a group of people who want what you want the top spot. They want to get that thing. 
And they might not say to you in on the bar, hey, David, how you doing? Have a yeah. good set tonight. In their mind, they're saying, I'm going to bury you, you motherfucker. You're not, I'm going to get this gig. Uh-huh. But you went on with 24 people and you took home the gold. You got the prize as the number one new face. 23 other guys didn't. You went up there. I don't think I was the funniest person there. I was the person there who showed the show. When I watched those first two acts, because the first night I wasn't watching, but the first two shows, the first eight and the second eight, I said, to God, there's some people here who are really funny. Like, oh, what's his name? Corey, Corey Holcomb was there. Yeah. So funny. So, I mean, his bit, I remember about the way to look at a girl when you're with your girl is to talk about the girl. Like, the, you know. And he remembers it because he did that on the road. I did. I killed. I killed. <laughs> I did that. It was in Denver. It was awesome. Um, but, uh, I said that first night, like, oh, no one else is showing the show. No one else wants to do that. Oh. Because I remember Tony Rock was so funny, but it was like, I'm, I'm telling you, this is my wife on the show. This is my dad no, on the show. No, but you were a visionary. Those people were just, all they knew was, let me be the funniest person they were, I can they be. Were, they were funnier. They but were funnier. they didn't understand that it's not just about being funny for getting a television show. It's about showing, it's, it's, it's almost the yellow and black book. How do we make a sitcom out of this comedian for dummies? Yes. And yes, how do you yes, show them exactly that? Exactly right. It, it, so I came up and I had this bit that was, you know, while I said to you, I had to find my comic, who am I? And I had this bit that was sort of my, my comic, who am I? And everything came from that. And, um, I was supposed to go on my honeymoon the next week. My wife was taking the, she was studying for the New York bar in New York. Um, and I was doing the Montreal Comedy Festival the same weekend. I was going to fly back from the festival on Sunday night and support her on Monday and Tuesday. She took the bar. And on Thursday, we were going to go uh, to Hawaii for our honeymoon. And everything changed. And I remember uh, my Now, man- did you have representation at the time? I, I, had, I had a manager. And I, he said, you can't go to Hawaii. And I was like, I kind of have to. <laughs> and he said, no, I have just already set up 15 meetings for you next week in L.A. We have to go to L.A. And we took 20 meetings in five days with NBC, CBS, Fox. I mean, I, I, I will – some of the people that I met with that week are working on the show I'm doing now. Incredible. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And um, so I – Cancel the honeymoon. I buy her two a set of diamond earrings, Maui and Kauai. From and, the college money. Yeah, yeah sweet. <laughs> Thanks, Wellesley. And then I, I um and then I um How did she take that? She's the biggest support of my life. She this is this is what happened. I flew home, she's about to take the, the New York bar, and she said, We're moving to California, aren't we? She's about to take the second hardest bar in the exam uh, exam in the country, and I'm saying we're moving to the place with the hardest bar exam in the country. And so um so we, I mean, she was amazing. She, we moved to California after the pilot didn't go. I wrote the pilot and we got to shoot the pilot. Bert was in it and, uh, Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould was great. Liz Vassy. It was, um, oh, and, um, oh my God. Peter Jacobson was my brother. It was amazing. Like everyone else was great. <laughs> if it had been and, I, those- and, I, and I just want to say something which, uh, I don't, I, I compare you to somebody when I watched that pilot, uh, who did a pilot. And then stop doing the on-camera stuff per se. Yeah. And uh, it's John Rogers. Okay. And because I was really blown away by your acting on the show, I thought you were amazing on the show. And I was actually kind of stunned that you, after that experience of doing the show, you basically sort of said uh, in a way, in a, in a slight way, you know, fuck it. 
I, I said, absolutely fuck it. It was heartbreaking, Barry, because I came out here thinking I want to be the next Jerry Seinfeld, the next Ray Romano. I was in Wendy's office at CBS and Ray's – Wendy Trilling. Wendy Trilling's office. She, and at that point, she was Wendy Goldstein. Yeah. And she came in and there's Ray Romano and I have his pilot picked up for CBS. We're going to shoot this pilot. And she says to Ray, David J is going to be the next Ray Romano. And he goes, who's David J? And – I'm the guy right here. You just met me. <laughs> and we, <clears throat> and we <clears throat> shoot this pilot and I loved writing it. I was here for six months. I moved out. My wife's in New York and Jeff and I got up every day for six months and we wrote, then we played some video games and we wrote again. And I had a blast making that pilot. That was stand up, like capturing a moment, the ability to put a scene here. And then when you're seeing that later in your life, you're going to go, Oh, I remember that moment. That was exactly why I love stand up. And then we got to shoot it. And I became the actor in the show and I hated it. Partially because I don't think I was good at acting, but I, the acting wasn't like stand-up to me. Writing was like stand-up Who was the me. director of the show? Pam Fryman. Pam Fryman. She's wow. amazing. I've done a couple pilots with her since. She's she's unbelievable. I needed her to support me. She, I mean, I just hated acting in it. So you thought you were bad. Oh, I was bad. You were not bad. Okay. I, I, you know me. I would okay. tell you. Uh, yes. I would tell you anything. Yeah. You were uh, not bad, and I, I thought so. So you, you let me let me ask you this. Sure. Truth serum in your veins here, okay? Okay, got the it. Fabulous yes. truth serum. Yeah, totally. Were you as good an actor as Jerry Seinfeld in his first pilot episode? Roseanne in her first pilot episode? Probably. Okay. Probably, yeah. So but have you seen those? <laughs> no, but um, I, I just didn't enjoy it. It wasn't about. Was I good at it? Was I bad at it? Did it get on? Did it not get on? As soon as that pilot... Let's assume it got on the air. What would you have done? Quit? No. I don't quit. So, the, you know, you do quit. That's what I'm so shocked about that we're going to talk about right here face no, to no, face. No, 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 no. I don't quit. You quit acting. No, I stopped acting. That's quitting. No, I found something I love. I love in, in doing... But you were writing before I ever too. Act, but, but before I ever acted in this pilot, I loved writing that pilot. And but that, you're still writing. I love it. I know. But that's not, you can try to make a moment out of this, but that really isn't. It, what was hard for me wasn't quitting acting. What was hard for me was after the pilot ended, all my agents were like, you can go right to producers. And I was like, I don't want to go right to producers. I don't want to do this. And everyone's like, you should. You go, I said, I want to write. And they said, no. You, you, you know what, how late you stay when you write? You'll be home by one o'clock if you act. You'll be home by the afternoon. You can watch your judge shows. And, and then I, I said, but I don't want to do that. I, I want to, I want to write. And, and, and it was, and, you know, and from their standpoint, 10% of writing isn't 10% of acting. They, they wanted that money. And, I, and they were different agents. You know, the agents that represent you, they're like, no, don't do that. And I said, I'm going to write a spec script. And I was at a party. I, was at a, I remember this. I was at my lawyer's, um, uh, who's a buddy of mine. I was at his house for a party. And there was this really hot girl there who was on Mind of a Married Man. She'd played this topless girl in this Mind of a Married Man. And she came up to me and she goes, you're, you're, you're DJ, right? I said, yeah. And she said, I need to get together with you and pick your brain. Okay. And she, that's got, not my brain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I got her phone number using my wife's pen. I remember thinking, Oh, I got a hot woman's phone number using my wife's pen. This is like a Raymond episode. No, she's a colleague. <laughs> she's a colleague. And I wrote the spec script, the colleague that was about a girl who gets a hot with a guy. And, and you know, no, they, and, and this whole thing. And that script got me my first gig. And I, which was, which was whoopee, a little, a little show we like to call whoopee. Uh, it was 2004 and I took a pay that cut. That was Maz Gibrani. No, it was, um, Ahmed Jalili. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. And I, I took a pay cut I, because I had to stop playing. I, I remember taking the meeting with the showrunner, 
incredible guy, two guys, uh, Terry Turner, who did, you know, Third Rock uh-huh. and all those SNL stuff and Brady Bunch movie and um, Larry Wilmore. And the whole meeting, Larry, I, they read the script. And when you're a writer and you get a meeting for a show. Larry Wilmore, didn't he do Bernie, Bernie Mac? Bernie Mac, yeah. And, and when, you, when you're a writer and you get a meeting for a show, they already, when you act, I have to read these sides in front of you. And it's in this meeting that you'll decide if I'm good and if I look right and if I'm too Jewish for the thing. But when you, when, when I'm a writer... You don't have the meeting. You don't go, I hated that script. Let's have a meeting anyway. I never, you never have a meeting as a writer unless they love your work. You never are in that situation. Unless they haven't read your script yet. But there's meetings that are set up. There were other people who met and you're auditioning for the gig and you got the gig, what you did in the meeting. It's, it's very similar to auditioning as an actor because you don't get the, you don't get the appointment unless they believe that you can, you can, have a chance of booking the gig. You know, Julie Ashton right. isn't going to bring you in if she doesn't think you have a chance. They don't want to waste their time. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I, I, what I found is, oh, you're one, when you're a writer and you take a meeting with a showrunner, it's really about, do you want to hang out with this guy at 10 o'clock at night? So, so take us through sure. a meeting to, how many meetings had you ever had before that to try to book a writing gig on a show. Was that your first one you ever took? No. Um, and tell me the ones that you took that, uh, no. so, so I, so that year I had, I got two showrunner meetings. Got it. With well, showrunner meetings, including yeah. this one, including this one. So two, you got one of them, the other one you didn't get. What was the other one? You the got other one from? was a show called, Oh, I remember the name. I can't believe I don't. Oh, Oh, that's okay. We'll remember. Later. Yeah, I'll get it. I'm, oh, it's, but, but what happened was they liked me for that show, but they didn't know if they'd have enough money because they hire from the, you know, the co-EP all the way down to staff writer and they didn't know if they'd have enough money. But whoopee, I'd move my wife out of here. She took the New York, the California bar and I go to her office and I'm like, sweetie, I got a gig. And she's like, great. And I was like, it's in New York. You got to be shitting me. And so I said, look, I, I got to do this, but I don't, it's whoopee. And I don't, I don't know if this is going to last. So I'll go, go there. to your wife. Listen, you know, that bar exam you took in New York, that's yeah. going to come in handy. We're, hold on to that. Did you burn that? Don't, don't. Yeah. So, but she, so the plan was she would stay in LA and I would go to New York and I'd fly back every weekend, five days a week. I live with two of the most single guys you've ever met. And the other days I came back to my other life in LA, I, I had my other life in Brooklyn and I was going back and forth and whoopee ended and I was without a job. So I sold a show called My Other Life in Brooklyn about a guy who lived five days a week with two single guys and came back to his married life on the weekend. And um, the writing part of it, like Terry and Larry were these incredible, I mean, they're both amazing showrunners. And to have those guys as my first bosses. It's like college. It was incredible. And the other writers on the show, were there any other writers on the show that started as stand-up comedians? Well, that was what was funny about it. Larry, I remember taking the meeting for the for the for the gig, and they'd read my script. Terry said it was his favorite Raymond Speck he'd read. It was a really great meeting. But Larry kept asking me questions about like, "And you're sure you're okay to give up stand up?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He goes, "Because you do stand up a lot. You're sure you don't want it?" I said, "I love stand up. I understand for this phase, I got to commit. I'm on it. I got it." And then you know, now he's on camera. <laughs> I know he's on yeah, camera yeah. now. So he he had the the uh... and so. And and the thing about this that I think is important for people to know, you talked about a spec script. So as a writer, um, a lot of times what you're asked to do is, um, and it works both ways. There's all, there's no rules, but 
writers either do one of two things. They write a crazy uh, spec script that has nothing to do with anything, and it's just so outlandish and out there that it's just like you have to take notice of it. Mm -hmm. But it would never be a spec script that would ever air on television, but you're showing them that you have an imagination. Mm -hmm. Or you do the safe route, and you write a spec script that actually would be something that could actually air on television and mm -hmm. you show that you have all the voices of all the characters and you know how to write for it. Yes. And the third way to get a job is to have a script, an original script that you've written, a pilot episode that's brilliant that you show people that you can write. And one of those three ways is how you get the meeting. They, th this is what's weird about it. When you audition for a show... You literally, you get the appointment, you walk in, you audition, you either get it or you don't get it. When you take a showrunner meeting, you go in, you get it or you don't get it. But the, what's hard about being a writer is that people need to read your work. And there's this there's this time frame, there's this wait time that you're like wondering, have they read yeah. the script? Are they yeah. going to read it? What do they think about yeah. it? What's happening? Sometimes you'll take a meeting before you give them the script. And then you'll say, hey, do you have anything you want to show us uh, yeah. you know, over the weekend? And you'll decide which script you're going to give them. You know, all your scripts are drowning in the ocean. you got to figure out which one I'm going to save to give these yes. people that's going to help me get the gig. So you, your, uh, your agents or you did decided, listen, the hot show is Raymond. Let me write a spec script about Raymond, and they'll show people that I can write for this. I think important thing in a spec script, and a spec script is different than an original script because you're taking an existing show and you're writing your sample of it. Uh, I think the important thing is to have your voice come through. So I, of the shows that were on TV then, that guy was very close. To, you know, Ray's comic, Who Am I, was very close to mine. So I felt like I could write a sample of it that would not only show my writing, but also serve as a conversation piece in the meeting. Cause I could say, Hey, this came from my life. So if you're looking for a writer who has moments in his life, inspire real stories, which every showrunner is, I got that for you. Now, everybody wants to, you know, everybody who wants to be a writer has this vision. Hey, I want to, I just, you know, I want to write a script. I want to get down and do this spec script. Just if you take a few minutes, take us through, like, what's the process when you're just sitting in front of your computer and you're saying, hey, I got to like, – they're telling me I got to write a spec sure, script to get sure. in the door. Right. What What do you – you know, having probably never written a spec script before, yeah. what's the process at the time? Because you're used to writing your own shit. Yeah, well, I, I, well, so I'll use the Raymond spec as a sample, which actually became the first episode of Traffic Light I wrote. If you look back on iTunes, I took that A story, the, the main story of it, and we put it in our characters. So even though I wrote the script on spec for free when it became an episode, um, so I knew, oh, it's funny. The idea that Ray gets a hot woman's phone number using his wife's pen, that's going to be a funny scene where he, A, when it happens – you're like, no, this is my wife. And B, when he comes home and he takes the napkin and he throws it in the trash and she's like, Ray, what are you doing? I am throwing away the thing that's going to kill us. You know, like, <laughs> no, she just wants to pick your brain. That's code for something. You know, like, and so I knew that, that those two scenes are funny. So now I needed the turn. You know, what's the change in the story? We obviously, Deborah is upset. So what's the unexpected? She's not upset. Ray, she doesn't want to pick your brain. She really wants to pick up. She does not want to have sex with you. No part of her that is a woman is identifying with any part of you that is a man. Oh, I, what? You know, and so now she's like, this is exactly what women in the workplace face. This is exactly, she wants to, she is treating you like a colleague. You have to treat her like a colleague. She's the colleague. I said it. <laughs> and so you're going out with her. What? You are having lunch with her. And now he's going out with Ray. Ray's going out with. <laughs> 
this woman because Deborah insists. So now that gets me to my first act break. And now I have to think about, okay, now how am I turning that upside down? Because obviously, like a, now you can't just do whatever you want. You have to be true to the show. Obviously, we're coming home to a scene where Deborah and Ray fight, fight with, with, with Frank and Marie, everyone around. And but here's Robert. the interesting yeah. thing. At the act break, the audience is thinking, okay, there's two things that could happen yes. here. One, the girl's going to make a pass at Ray. Right. Two, the girl is going to do exactly the way his wife says she's going to do, but he thinks the opposite. Okay. Or three, there's going to be some unexpected thing. Yes. That's and, crazy. And, and if you're writing a good spec script, it better be three. Right? Right. It can't be one or two. Thank you for pointing that okay. out. Okay. So I get to, what's my three? Like, what's my three? And I thought, my sister had left, again, this is right from my life. My sister left me a voicemail message. And it was an answering machine message. This is back when there was those things. And I play it. And my sister said, hey, it's me. Give me a call. I want to talk to you. And my wife was like, Who, who's this? Who's this woman? And I go, it's my sister. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that this woman left a message, it's me. So I wrote that the woman he goes on the date with calls, hey, it's me. I had so much fun. And Deborah hears and goes, no, I'm the only it's me in your life. I'm the only <laughs> it's me in your life. And we see that she gets jealous of this amazing time they have and 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 basically she says I, he goes i don't know why why are you angry why why did everything you said and uh, uh, do, do you want to go out and so and then she he says um i did everything you said and then she says um uh i just didn't think that you would like her and he says no you didn't think that she would like me that's and so there's this that's a real moment like you didn't yeah, no no part of her that is a woman would like any part of me that and so they have this fight and then Deborah, because there needs to be another turn it said and you know throughout it i have marie and frank chiming in and i have robert going i want to be you know like, <laughs> and so i um the turn was Deborah says ray do you want to go out with her uh, what? Do, do you do you want to go out with her? D there is an answer that you're looking for. If you could just whisper <laughs> it in my ear, I would be more than happy to repeat it louder. And um, and this is the scene, and this is a funny twist, and this is my chance to be me in the script and to be me in the room because that's how I am with my wife. Like I, I desperately want to make my wife happy. I just have no idea how to achieve that. Please, just whisper. I'll tell it. And 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 he says, yeah, I, I guess I guess. If you're cool with it, I would, I would like to be, we have things in common. I would like to be, if you're cool with it. Great. Then we will be friends with her. And they go out, the three of them. She decides that this is how we're going to be. And that was the, the, the end. And you just, you just showed something to the audience that's really important because we're in a business, unfortunately, of ordinary. We're in a business of formula. Mm -hmm. And yes, there is many shows that are, similar to each other always mm -hmm. you know according to jim and mm -hmm. still standing were like the same show almost every show's every plot line has been done been done but so what you have to do to break through is you have to create something that's the unexpected mm -hmm. yes there have been situations before in the world that are unexpected. When Sammy Davis Jr. came into the All yeah. in the Family household yeah, and yeah, kissed him, yeah. that was unexpected. Amazing. Amazing. But the point is, those are the things you remember. Mm -hmm. And what got you in those rooms is the spec script that wasn't ordinary. It was extraordinary. And it had those turns that no one was expecting. And it had heart. And the thing about you, DJ Nash, that has always been true ever since I met you, 
is that you have heart and you have this thing that you bring forward that we're going to talk about in this last portion of this podcast. So you go into Up All Night as an executive producer mm-hmm. and you're in a situation where you're working with people who literally are iconic. Uh, are, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm working on a show that I watched last year. That's right. I'm working on. I didn't. I, I had to do very little catch up to go. What episode did I miss? Because I watched the show. So they bring you on. Yes. In my humble opinion, yes. Uh, the producers. You want to share who the producers of Up All Night are? Lauren Michaels. That's correct. Yeah. So, so you're going. Who, who doesn't even have his name at the top of the show? It's at the end of the show. That's, that's right. I want to do that. Can I get that? Crazy. You can yeah. have anything you okay, want. Okay. Thank you. And, so, and a third coaster? Can I get a third coaster? <laughs> yes, you can. Okay. No, you can put your so, name at the end. You can't have a so third coaster. So you're walking yeah. in. You're hired. Here you are. I flew to New York to meet Lauren. I, 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 I tell, tell us about that. It was crazy. Um, I, the year before, I had done a pilot for Sony, um, with Zach Levi, um, and TV's Chuck, and it was with Peter Tolan, and and I have to say, I've done two pilots with Peter. Thank and, you for saying Levi. Yes, I Levi. It it's just like Eugene. It's okay. Um, um, he, I, I, Sony's my family. I had done three years on a series for them. I, I love those guys, and I love developing with them. Had you ever met Lauren Michaels before? I had not. This, you want to get to Lauren? F Sony. You want to get right to? So no, I, I, no, I, I know, okay. I know, I, I Sony. I I had never met Lauren Michaels before. No, and I fly to New York. They said, "Hey, would you be willing to meet with Lauren?" And I said, um, "What? <laughs> we want to fly to New York to watch Saturday Night Live and then meet Lauren. Are you cool with that?" I don't understand the question. <laughs> Am I paying for the flight? Well, yeah, I'm good. So we fly. I fly to New York. It was incredible. I fly to New York first class to, in, to New York to go sit down with Lauren Michaels. Honey, get that bar exam back. It was crazy. <laughs> no, no, the show shot here. I, she, I'm not allowed to do New York shows anymore. But the um, the uh, I go to to meet Lauren. I am told that we don't know exactly when you're going to meet him. And I said, okay. And I was flying on a Saturday morning and I knew the next day is Mother's Day. I better be home for Mother's Day. Like there's, I, I said to everybody, everyone's like, do you mind flying? I was like, I got two things I need. I need uh, a deal in place before I get on this plane. And I need, I need, uh, I got to be home for Mother's Day. So I get there and I watch SNL from Lauren's office. I'm sitting in his office, the cards for like, this is the sketch. This is what you've been, it's, it's, I'm, I'm in there watching, waiting. And they said, you're not going to meet him now. You're going to meet him after the show. That's cool. I love it. Let's go. And then I go to this after party and I'm not a, you, I can't, I'm not an after party guy. <laughs> There's no, like, now for those of you who don't know, yeah. at, at Saturday Night Live, what happens is after the show, they have an after party every single, uh, Saturday after the show at a different cool hip restaurant bar and it's like literally it's a socio-economic <laughs> dynamic okay yeah it's because it's, it's like you literally have the lower class the middle class really, yeah. the upper middle class and the upper class uh so you walk in and at the bar area are the people, the literally the plethora of plebs who can't get through to the table. You go through the other area, the front tables are the people who really aren't that important. Then you get to the middle tables, sort of the cast members, and then the back tables, the bigger cast members. And then Lorne is typically at the biggest he is table in, in, in the this back, place, he literally was in a size room. of Rhode Island, yes. uh, you know, <laughs> in a private room. And he's always sitting with the host of the show and the musical act. 
And then, you know, a lot of times what will happen is you're like, come and meet Lauren. You, you walk in and yeah. literally he's there with Steven Tyler and Alec Baldwin. And you're like, um, I, don't, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. Yeah, no, sit yeah, down. Sit yeah. down. It was Jack. It was um, John Hamm. And Jack White. <laughs> so I get in there and I'm, and I'm, and I'm set, I'm told, you know, like there's like a, like I was brought over, then, oh, oh someone's like, Jack White just, sorry, like, like, here, here's a scone or whatever that's jumped in my mouth. And, um, and I, and I'm standing there and it's like 2.30 in the morning. Like, I, I, as much as I did stand up now with two kids and I was a writer, I'm, I'm, I'm now to the early days. I get up early. So it's like 2.30 in the morning and I'd been drinking and I didn't pace myself for this. Like, I'm, this is my job interview is at 2.30 in the morning at a club in New York next to Jack White. So I, I, um, I with a guy who's worked all day long on the show, worked through the dress rehearsal, the fighting, the getting together, the live oh show together, God. doing it, and then wrapping up and then going to the place. I mean, literally very difficult situation. Not I didn't typical. Didn't feel like either one of us was going to be at our best. Yeah. <laughs> so I walk in there, I get ushered over. Um, excuse me, Mr. Ham. <laughs> now, what down. advice had somebody given you before the meeting on how Lauren was as a person and what you were to expect? None. None. Okay. Absolutely no prep. Right. Should I have had prep? This is where a manager comes in. Yeah. I uh, I had no prep, so I just knew I kind of was going to do what I did. My rule is be me. And that works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't work, then it's not a place I should be. So I go in and I um, sit down and um, I had had I had an offer from Sony, a two-year overall deal offer on the table. So part of this was them trying to get me to be here to go to NBC. But I'm with Lauren Michael. This is amazing. Um I'm also a huge Paul Simon fan, so just to know Paul Simon's best friend is cool. Forget the Lauren Michaels. <laughs> so, um, uh, and then I sit down, and he is unbelievably gracious. He introduces me. His son is there. He introduces me to Jack White. I was happy he did it in that order, and um, and we just talked, and we talked about the show, and it was very, it was a quick conversation. He was such a gracious host, and um, you know, really helped my deal come together. And then, um, and um, my my thought process yes. was when you were brought onto that show. Uh, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. You know, certain times you bring on different executive producers on a show because you don't have something on the show. Something's missing or something's to be determined that's mm -hmm. missing on a show. And this guy specializes in this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And this is what's missing on the show. And I felt what they probably thought, thought was missing on the show was the show needed a little more heart, a little more family. And a you little know, it's more, interesting. And, and and I feel like that's one of the reasons why they wanted to try to bring you in and try to. It's not that it, they weren't accomplishing it; they weren't accomplishing it consistently. Do you disagree with that? Well, I Tucker Colley was brought on to be the showrunner. There was a showrunner first season who went on to work on Go On, and Tucker Colley went on to run the show. And he said, "Hey, do you want to run it?" And Tucker, who is, you know, he wrote more episodes of Raymond than anybody else. Um, and I'd worked on a bunch of shows with him. He said, I only want to do it if I can bring, if I can do it with DJ. And, you know, they were willing to give him the gig himself. And he was like, nope, I want to do it with DJ. It'll be fun. We'll do it together. And so Lauren's first response was, who the fuck is DJ? <laughs> And then um, I flew into Tucker. Actually, Tucker was with me there when I went to New York. Um, and uh, and how many uh, yeah. writers and producers do you think Tucker has worked with 
during his entire career up to that point. Well, the interesting thing about Tucker is he did all nine seasons of Raymond. So I've actually probably worked with more because I sw- I jumped around to these shows that went 12 and out. But um, he's worked with a lot. Yeah. But the point being yes. is yes, he chose you. He, we have an incredible... Getting back to yeah. Montreal, 24 artists, they chose you as the standout. Here he chose you as the guy above everybody else that he wanted to work with. Because why? Because you're doing something that the other people didn't show him that you showed him. And I think that's the point of this whole podcast of what you're showing is that in order to get to the next level, you have to figure out a way to break through the pack in any way. You just said something. You have the confidence. You just Your rule is to be me. And being you is what is extraordinary. And the other people, although they weren't ordinary because they're incredible working writers and phenomenal, but there's something maybe that they didn't do or weren't about that made him feel safe with you and maybe not as safe hiring one of the other people he's worked with. And that should be noted. It's another example of how you went in and you... You made it happen. You made it happen when other people weren't making it happen. There's a lot of people that he worked with who would have loved to be on that gig, but you got the gig. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not necessarily comfortable with that. You know, I, I, I think. Um, well, you're a humble guy. I, I think Tucker is. I really believe in Tucker, and I think Tucker and I, when we worked, he's going to work on this show with me. Like we're working together on this one. And I just think he's amazing. And I think we, um, believe in each other. And that's a really important thing that you don't want to work with something or someone that you don't believe in. Cause it's hard to, and fix. this is a, another rarity yeah. of you. Here's a guy who gets the job as the executive producer. He says, listen, I'm not going to do this unless I can bring on DJ. Yeah. Then you get a gig with your own show, which is the last thing we're talking about here, okay. which is the name has changed seven, seven times. times. So it was, it, it was started as then came Elvis. Then it was the thing about my family. Then it was the family guide, but you'd have to say guide. So it didn't sound like the family guy. <laughs> like who was that? And then, then uh, it was different strokes. Different strokes. But I realized that had been used Eight before. is enough. <laughs> um, yeah. Then Seinfeld. 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 It was, <laughs> Yeah, and then it and then and now it's uh, growing up Fisher. Growing up Fisher, which is Fisher, by the way. I chose that last name because Traffic Light, the show creator's name was Bob Fisher. So now the title of the show is a shout out to my mentor. So that's pretty good. Wow. So you you basically create the show. You mm-hmm. write the show yourself. Mm-hmm. You get the gig. You oh. go through the whole can process. I, can, can I we have you, time to talk about yes, that? Yes, okay. I want you to uh, go here's, through here's this because okay. this is this is important this, because this, this is the first time you've ever you've done a pilot. Mm-hmm. That has gone and got to not yes. gone to series, yes. but this is like this a, is an incredible story. This is yeah, a little engine so, that could. Okay, and want, not it's not an incredible story because the show is whatever. It's an incredible story because it's no. It, but it I want you to talk Hollywood. about it this because is, this is the this way is it's supposed to go. And it's been how many years to try to get to this point? I first had the idea for this show in two thousand and five. Two thousand five. I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, oh, this is an interesting idea for a cold open. And I wrote this scene and I, most of the writing I do, certainly all the writing I do for other people, I have an outline and it's approved and you do stuff. I woke up in the middle of the night. I was like, let me just write this scene. I don't know where this is going. Let me just write this. And I wrote this scene and, and then I wrote the next scene and I, 
um, in, in the show, my dad is blind. My dad went blind when he was 11 years old and he, um, he's just, he's, I met the most amazing man I'll ever meet in my life when I was four and a half minutes old. Cause even though he's blind, he's a lawyer, he put five kids through college. He, um, I mean, growing up, I couldn't complain about anything. I'd be like, dad, I'm having trouble with my book report. I went to law school blind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to trouble you. I'll give it another crack. Let's just try that. But and um, one of the most unbelievable disabilities when you have sight and then you are faced with the fact that you don't have sight. It's just unbelievable. In some ways, worse than never having sight. It's 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 much worse. For my dad, it he knew the social graces that went with seeing. And he lost all of his sight at first, and then he lost – he regained some of it. If you close one eye completely and one halfway, that's how much he saw for most of my childhood. Because he had sight at one point, he knew the social graces that come with seeing, and so – he didn't tell people he was blind. People knew he couldn't see well enough to drive a car, but they didn't know this guy's guide dog eligible. And so he would hide it. Never lied to people, just kept it from people. And my uncle, who he was in business with, would help him do that. If you said, hey... He was driving you to school. That must have been Yeah, it was a very... It hit a lot of people. <laughs> That's why he became a lawyer. He had to defend himself. But, the, um, <laughs> but like, if you say, hey, Mel, I want you to meet, and his arm would be out, and you'd have to meet his handshake. And if you said to him, hey, I'm going to get my haircut, two hours later, you came back, you'd go, hey, great haircut, because he remembered. And it was amazing. So I wrote this show about... I wrote in one night I just wrote this idea that I had for a show because my dad and my my dad one day gets a guide dog. And I'm like, first of all, you hid your blindness for a long time. Second of all, mom's allergic to dogs, and that's when my parents said, Hey, we're splitting. And so After how many years of marriage? Of the, Nineteen. Yeah. And they um so they get divorced. My dad gets a dog. Uh, and, and from my standpoint of the writer writing this, I wrote this first act where the kid's father gets a dog and that's end of act one. And I just go through writing this thing. And I remember writing this piece because I was laughing. I remember sitting in my office at home laughing out loud to myself, which is really hard. Like, you know, it doesn't happen. And then I also started to cry. I, I get to this point and I'm not crying at me. I'm crying at this kid I'm writing about. I'm thinking about this kid. It was called, at that point, the show was, that was the title that existed first was Life After Nine. And I wrote him as nine years old and it was sort of a one year show with some voiceover looking back. And I have Again, this- for those listening, again, it's not wrong to have a formula or an idea of what a show could be that you want it to be like to emulate sure. and the wonder years was obviously a great show and it's and but you, you you take something just a little piece of what you think the area of the subject matter is that you want to feel like that that made me feel good when i yes. watched that and i want to do something that makes other people feel good in this day and age, you, you're not doing it exactly. You're not yeah. getting up on stage and doing Bob Newhart's That's material. Right. Oh, that would man. be come on. I can't believe he did that on my own show. Okay, so <laughs> so so I have this idea, and I, re, I I write this I write the script. I show it to my agents, and they go, eh. <laughs> they basically like no, no 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 this is nope no. That's going nowhere. And I'm like, what? What's going on? Like, there's a lot of voiceover. Uh, it's, uh, there's no market for this. D- no, 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 no. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. I don't even think about it. Then you say you don't think about it. What do you mean you don't think about it? The people that you trust in your career. Yes. Who are some of the this is greatest weird. agents this is, in the world. Yes. 
Different uh, agents now. Different agents now. Different agents yes, now. Different agents now. That's okay. So, so they, but, but, they but tell you they say this happens. No market, a, this, this happens. This, a this lot. happens a lot. If, if is, you're an artist, you're going to be faced carefully. with a situation <laughs> where people come up to you who are in positions of power, who are in your life, who you pay to be in your life and advise you, tell you, hey. That's not going to fly. It's never going to happen. And when any, anybody ever says to me, it's never going to happen, that's my inspiration to say, fuck you. It's going to happen. Because now I want it to happen for my reasons and to show you. <laughs> like, that's it's right. like I got all the same stuff. All you right. just gave me another reason. So to they tell it. you it's not so going to They say it's not going to happen. And so I, I should tell you that you know one of the things I was talking about earlier in this is that you want to write a script that lets you have talking points in that meeting with the showrunner. When I was – when you picture a guy who's blind, you picture a guy in the corner selling pencils, tripping on shit. My dad, we wanted to put a pool in the backyard. We lived in the Berkshires, you know, Western Massachusetts. So on a weekend, Which is where I'm from. Yeah, where Long Meadow, yeah, yeah, Massachusetts. Long Meadow, yeah, this is Pittsfield, or Richmond. And so my dad on the weekend, we go in the backyard. Me, my dad, and a chainsaw. Okay, here's how this is going to work. You tell me what tree <laughs> to cut down. Uh, what? You tell me what tree to cut down. Uh, this one right here. Okay, great. Good, good. Where's the house from here? Uh, it's over your right shoulder. My right shoulder? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Takes the cover off. This is now a danger zone. Go inside until I yell safety zone. <laughs> what? Well, I, I don't think we should. Danger zone! <laughs> and I run inside and we've cut down a tree and it's safety zone and I come back. That's the cold open of the pilots in the air Tuesday nights on NBC. That's the cold open. But uh, let's go back to the story. We know it ends happily. Okay, whatever. So I go back and I, I have this idea and I think, okay, they don't want me to do it. But I go into writer's rooms and that chainsaw story, I remember this. I was on Till Death and I'm sitting in the room with Alana Warnick, who's one of the best draft writers in the business. She's amazing. And I tell her this story. And she had a face like you had a face, which is like, you, that's a f- child services, <laughs> you know, like, like, don't, this is bad. And I, but when you're, a, when you're growing up, you think everyone's like you until you realize otherwise. And then you go through this thing where you go, shit, I'm not like everybody else. Pretend that you are. But when you become a writer, when you become a stand-up, this is where stand-up and writing, this is why I don't regret not being an actor. That's why I didn't quit acting. I am a writer and I'm a stand-up because both of those arts celebrate, no, I'm not like you. I'm completely different than you. No, you're right. When I am on stage, I'm not just telling jokes. I'm not just telling jokes. I am telling you who I am. Before you care about what I have to say, you care about who I am. And so I wrote this show. And so I, I, I have this idea and I'm talking to Alana Warnick and I see her face and I said, fuck, that's, that, that face is a show. That t- if a writer is looking at me and goes, that's, I know this is something. So I took a meeting with Sony. I was at Sony until death. I can't develop outside the deal. So I called Sony. I'm like, hey, I want to set up a meeting. And Who were um, the executives there at the Glenn time? Glenn Edelman. Yes. Wonderful. Amazing. Wonderful. Uh, and, uh, and Tal Rabinowitz. So, okay. So I go in and I um, – I tell, I said to Tal and I said to Glenn, I, I want to, and Simran was working on the drama side, Simran Sethi. And I said, I want to um, pitch you this idea I have for a show. So I pitched them this idea for the show. You pitched them when your agents told you this isn't going anywhere. So you violated the code. You went against your agents. Different agent. You switched agents. I did. After they told, okay. So yeah, I said, well. So as an artist, sometimes after your manager agent tells you this isn't going to go, you have two choices. You can agree with them or you can fire them. Yeah, I just felt like, you know, uh, you have to share my passion for stuff. Again, be who you're going to be. 
And if that works out, good. And it doesn't mean it's not every idea. It, it doesn't like it's my way or the highway. But look, this is something in my core. I'm, I'm looking at Alana Warnick. She's telling me like I trust Alana Warnick, writer, more than I trust this guy. So do you feel like when you met with the new agents before you went out? I just want to just yeah. do you feel like you met with the new? You know, a lot of agents want to be in business with somebody who can sell shows. Did you have a little bit in your brain like, well, they're saying they like the idea. Just the just the, oh, I didn't pitch this idea to the new agents. Oh, you didn't. Okay. No. no. Um, and so I. Take the idea out, and I remember my Sony's response was, "It's really good. It's really good. Is it a drama?" He have a guy get his blind guy getting divorced, and I was like, "Um, I think you think it's a drama because it's about something. How about we do a comedy that's about something?" Okay, and so um, we get an incredible producer attached. We get an incredible director attached. I mean, I'm in a room. I'm now meeting with presidents of networks flanked by two incredible folks. And this idea is amazing. And I, I remember Sony wanted to – there was a – this is way specific. I don't know if you care about this, but how we're going to structure the deal. If come versus a pilot or blind script. We did it if come, which is good because – Explain that to our audience. Uh, if come – Sounds more sexual than it is. It um, is uh, if we sell it, then you get paid. If we don't sell it, you get nothing, but you retain your idea. And if you um, do sell it, usually the, the the fee you get is more than just a script because you you the writer assumed the risk. And I was like, they were wanting me offer. I said, you know what? We're going to sell it. We're going to sell it. I believe in this. We're selling it. And we didn't sell it. <laughs> Everyone said, blind guy's really sad. And so I said, okay. And the idea was mine. And I was okay. And, and so now my agent at that point had said, this isn't it. We took it out. I mean, people in the meeting, they were edge of the seat asking great questions. There was a meeting we had at one network and I was like, we sold this. This is – nope. And so um, I forgot about it. I truly did forget about it. It was not – I did not – yearned to tell the story. I was sad that it didn't go, but I didn't feel, I was like, you know, we tried. And so I don't want to be one of those writers who's holding on to an old project. I want to be a writer who I tried it. We'll move on. I'm proud of it. Whatever. Kind of killed me that I never wrote it. You never, never got to, I wrote that thing that one night, but I never really got to develop it and write it. So I'm on up all night and I get a call from Tal Rabinowitz. Let's have breakfast tomorrow. No, it wasn't really. It was her assistant. No, uh, it was. Uh, she, I said, I, I can't. I, I'm just fascinated. She I, talks like that. She does. She's like this. She's, yeah. She calls me up and she's like, listen, man. No, uh, she calls me up. And she says, I want to have breakfast with you tomorrow. And I said, Tall, I'm not developing this year. I'm an EP on up all night. I'm not developing. And she said, just have breakfast with me. And I said, I, I, I'm not. Just have a fucking omelet with me. So I went and I had an omelet with her at King's Road Cafe in Studio City. It's not there anymore. And she said, I wanted you to develop this year. And I said, I, I, I'm not going to. And she said, I want to do the thing about your dad. And I said, Tall, we tried to sell that. We didn't, we couldn't sell it. And she said, I'm the buyer. And I was like, Oh, and I said, do you still want them to be blind? And she's like, yeah, yeah. And I said, okay, do you want them to be divorced? And she said, I, I don't know. I said, why not? And she said, because how you get them together every episode? I'll get them together every episode. He's a blind guy. Can't drive a car. I'll get them together. And, um, and. I said to her, I, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about. I need a week to think about what I want to say here. I'm going to call you. I'm going to come in and, and pitch it to you. And what I realized was since 2005, when I first pitched it, and now it's 2012, then it was 2012, I became a dad. 
I have a four-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter. And I have such a deeper understanding of what it means to be a father, to raise kids, to save for a 529, to instill values, to do this, to make a marriage work for the sake of your kids. And so I had this forgiveness. I had this appreciation. I had this way of looking back at that time. And I said to her, there's going to be a voiceover in this. I want there to be a voiceover of a guy looking back at the way his, it's a father looking back at the way his father fathered him. And so I go and I pitch it to a pod, which is a producer only deal. These, these people who sort of help the non-writing producers who help you launch a show and, and run a show. And I pitch Jason Baton's company and I have a meeting. I, I'd known Jason for a long time and his producing partner, Jim, I had talked to him a few years before about maybe doing this as a feature. And he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I sit down with Jason and in my pitch, I had said, as I pitched the, um, I, I pitched my agents the idea and I said, the voiceover should be, think Jason Bateman. <laughs> so they go, Hey, do you want a meeting with Jason Bateman? I was like, I do. And in the meeting, I deliberately didn't mention think Jason Bateman because I was coming to him as a producer, not as a voiceover person. And in the meeting, he said, who are you thinking of for the voiceover? And I said, he's in this meeting and it's not Jim. <laughs> and he said, I'd love to do it. So we took it in out. the room. He said, in the room, room, he said, we took it out. And then we go and we pitch the network and we pitch Jen Salky, who's unbelievably so supportive of this project. We sit down with her. Tal's there. Simran's there. All my, pl all the people who. And Jason's in the meeting. Jason. With yeah. He's amazing. And, um, I'm pitching. I start, I go. Uh, I met the most amazing man I ever met in my life when I was four and a half minutes old. My dad's blind, but before he picture a guy, we chopped down and we, I told the chainsaw story and I do this whole thing and I do the pitch and... Now, Jen, you did the pitch. So, J Tal had read the script. No, there's no script. No script. And th 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 that thing I wrote that night, no one has seen. Got it. My wife saw. Um, but I um, come in to pitch it and Tal had obviously given them the heads up about what it was about and I'm telling stories about my dad. I'm telling stories about what it, I'm telling stories, um, about getting that apartment for my dad. I helped my dad find that apartment. I took the tour. Now, you knew that Tal wanted to buy it. She was in a new position under Bob Greenblatt at uh, NBC, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. And so she was in a position where she could, could buy now, mm -hmm. but you still had to go in again and audition. In a way, you might sure. not call it an audition. No, it's an audition. You're, you're pitching. You're, but you, you, you're, you're, you're somebody call, But somebody calls you and they say, listen, I want to buy this. And in your mind, you're like, oh, wow, uh, this is going to be bought. And then you realize, oh, there's another layer I got to go through here. There's two sides of it. There's what's the idea and who's going to do the idea. And I had to sell them on who's going to do the idea. And so I take this meeting and Jason's there and we have a great time. And they all get up. This is really funny because Jay, we all – so they, we hug goodbye. They leave. Jason, Jim, our two agents, and I get in the elevator. And everyone's high fiving except me and Jason. And I go, um, did we sell it? Did we sell it? And, and, and Jason's like, I know. I don't know. They didn't say let's do this. And everyone else is like, no, come on. They loved it. They loved it. Tall asked you to come in. I was like, I, I don't, did we sell it? <laughs> and, and I, I think, it turns out that they were already going to do it. That before I, they just wanted to hear the idea, but I, I didn't. So to me, I was like, oh, I just want to hear it. Like, I need some legal. Can you sign this document? <laughs> um, but and then we got to write the script. And Jen and Tal and Simran and the notes that they gave were so 
they made the project better. They, like I, that's what I wanted. I wanted to write the script. I didn't, you know, I didn't, you, you always think of a series, you always think of a, shooting a pilot, but I just, as a writer needed to have those 32 pages of a script and tell that story. So I write this script and, you know, I wrote 4,000 drafts of this script and this, this, can you change this? Can you make this? But every note is respectful. And, and then they go, let's, let's shoot it. And so, which is the greatest thing, which what normally what happens when you do this deal, you then have to turn in your final script. They give you some notes. They want to see that you can take direction. You do the notes. You give it back to them. Sometimes they have you tweak a few more things before they do it. But first you go to the studio and they're giving you the notes and then you're bringing it to the network. Yeah. And then they're going to determine whether to do a pilot or not from all those scripts. Normally between Thanksgiving and December, they decide on what scripts they're going to go to pilot and what scripts they're not going to do. And, and, yeah, and, I think and the scripts key, usually come in December, and yeah. then they decide January, February. Yeah, and the key here for this, for you to understand, is that it, is you're in a situation where these people have to decide to write a check to bet on DJ Nash. In terms of the, the, the or, shooting you know, it. Shooting, shooting it, it. Yeah. yeah, the production the, on a single camera show, it's about $3 million plus for yeah. a pilot. And so uh, we, we get greenlit we shoot this pilot and i have to say like um it's exactly why i write like this this like look we're on the air and that's amazing and i'm in this amazing period of of before we get into production so it's like this amazing honeymoon but i got to write this love letter to my dad that's what i wanted to do i wanted to write a script and then we got to shoot a pilot and i have this crew that I mean, everyone is amazing. There's people who did the best work of their careers. If they didn't, I want to see what else they did because it's amazing. But David Schwimmer directed it. That was everyone just really. J.K. Simmons playing my dad is unbelievable. Um, I want to tell you a quick story. Can I? How much time are we? Don't worry about okay, it. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. So, as I'm on up all night, I get. I'm I'm on set and we're doing the wedding episode, which ended up being our last. And I'm looking at my phone on deadline and. It says, after 49 years with William Morris, Bill Cosby signs with CAA. So I text my agent, heard we got the cause. Congratulations. Set up a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and he texts me back, are you serious? And I go, uh, yes, set up a meeting. And he says, um, he calls, listen, uh, Bill Cosby's got an idea for a show. He wants to sit down with writers. Would you really want to sit down with him? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you're a stand up. You're like, yeah, like I don't understand the question. Like, <laughs> like this is like the Lauren. Am I paying for the flight? Like, what's happening? Like, do I want to sit? Like, my parents are divorced. The Cosby Show was my role model for how to be married. My wife is a lawyer of color, probably because Claire was. Like, this is. Let's come on. Let's yes, set this up. Can where should I be? And I go. Um, they said to meet tomorrow at his house. What? What? What's ha what's <laughs> happening? So I go to his house and I remember it was in the Palisades, it still is, and I said I had to be there at noon, but I got there at like nine. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I just want to figure out where it is. This is where I'll park. This is how my hair will look. This is good. I'll go get a bagel. I'll come back. And I was like, what, what time do you ring the buzzer for – Dr. Cosby. Is that, is that a noon buzzer? Is that a 12? I really, I called my assistant. I was like, Hey, what time would you ring the buzzer if you were? And we decided 1158. 1158, you're showing Cosby some respect. This is what's happening. And I pressed the buzzer and you know, like there's some, I, I, this interview has just been, uh, nice because there's a lot of, um, amazing moments that I've 
it has been nice. I've been a very lucky, fortunate career. This moment of going to Bill Cosby's house is a rite of passage. I wanted to meet two people in my life, my grandfather and Bill Cosby. And my grandfather's dead. That's not happening. So I go, okay, 11.58, I'm going to hit the buzzer. I press the buzzer. I'm not kidding. Who is this? And I'm like, (laughs) this is crazy. This is crazy. I go, "Um, uh, it's DJ Nash. And you want to come into my house? And I'm like, this is, and I'm just trying to score a joke wherever I can. So I'm like, um, why don't you meet me on the front steps and we'll take it from there? And he goes, Lopez buzz him in. And I'm like, George Lopez works here. This is so much money. And the buzzer door opens and it's like 30 feet to the front door. And I remember thinking to myself, you were going to meet, you're about to meet Bill Cosby. Keep it to keep it together. You're going to meet Bill Cosby. The door is going to open. I remember I had this inner mind as I'm walking. I'm like, you're a writer. Be a person. Be a man. You know, like, you know, be yourself and it'll work and all this stuff. And he's going to pitch this idea for a show. And the door opens and I'm waiting. And it's Mr. Lopez, the shortest Latino man I've ever seen. And then I meet Bill Cosby and we sit down and we talk for two hours about comedy. And Dr. Cosby do you know when a smoke detector goes off in your house and you hear it like every seven minutes? It doesn't seem like it's an equal amount of time. Like, eh, eh. I'm sitting here talking to this guy and we're just talking, but every seven minutes it's like, Bill Cosby. <laughs> like, like, That's Bill Cosby. You're like, and you're having this conversation and he is so generous. And so, and we, and he, he heard, he let me talk first about my attitude on comedy. And then he says to me, we're basically the same person. And I like, what does let me just stop living now it's over that's it and i said that's not a coincidence you raised me and i had this opportunity to sit down with him that was unbelievable i um i my stand-up you know just tell a story that's what he did he didn't were and and all of the stuff i do this was an amazing amazing event i i i think if i look at this year sitting down and being able to show my dad that pilot um, well, this is, him, this yeah. is, this is comes full circle. So you get the pickup, you, f- you realize in May that, uh, you get the call that, yeah. uh, your show gets picked up. Yeah. Tell me what that felt like. Tell me what, you know, all the years that you've been working, starting when you were 15 doing comedy in between two bands. Yeah. Right. And, wow. Uh, and to the point where you get the call. From Jen Salk and Tal and Bob, and, and yeah, Bob Greenblatt yeah. saying that your show. Uh, I, that call itself, it hadn't sunk in then. So it wasn't, that call wasn't, I remember I was sitting at a restaurant in Sherman Oaks with a buddy of mine who's now a writer on staff, Matt Harowitz. And I, I, I love Matt. Matt's awesome. He, I didn't, it, it wasn't, that moment wasn't filled with like, oh my, it wasn't, it wasn't a Toyotathon, like incredible moment. It was two events later that really hit home. I, I, had to do a bunch of different things to, I had to call the cast, I had to tell everybody and, and do stuff. And, um, I, I thought telling my dad would be huge. And it was, I mean, he, I, I called my sister and I said, you got to get over to dad's and you got to videotape and I'll have, we'll videotape this side and we'll cut it together. It's going to be great. And it's pretty solid. But, um, uh, it's when I step back into my house and, um, that woman who, you know, took the California bar from me and then let me go to New York and then is the only person who's read that first draft. And she, it was, yeah, it was pretty great. She Looking at her and uh, that's the person who 
when I was lying in bed after the studio run through or the network run through for life with David J, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> like that was the person who talked me to, you know, there, there's that there's, she was the gardener, you know, and she made this flower, whatever was this show is it's her, it's her, you know? And so, um, that was the moment, the moment of, you know, the kids are like <laughs> killing each other with pillows and I walk in and we just look at each other and that's the moment I was like, Oh shit, we got this. Yeah. It was wow. pretty great. Amazing. Yeah. What was your proudest professional moment in your career? Not the thing or the moment where what, someone whatever, else watched whatever, it. Whatever, whatever was the question. proud, the proudest moment of your career, or you know, the thing you point to that you're the most proud of. Sitting there with my family, my mom and dad are divorced, but you know, we all got together to watch the pilot. And, you know, wedding rules apply. So you have to behave like you would at our wedding. (laughs) And we all sat in my sister's basement and, you know, J.K. Simmons, we can say it's a show loosely based on whatever you want to say. J.K. Simmons is playing my dad in this show and um, Jenna's now going to play my mom. Like to watch a show and have them see that and have them realize that like I, I I emailed our crew afterwards because I didn't do this. We did this. You know, this is not my thing. This is our thing. And. My dad, he, I'll never repay the bar tab that I owe him, but that show, the pilot, that moment, let him know that I was aware of the tab. (laughs) Yeah, I know there's a tab. And, um, yeah, it it was, uh, I remember driving him home. He's blind and I'm driving him home and we know my dad talks as much as I do. It's annoying when we're together and we, we just drove in silence for a little while and, and like make like you're a car, make like you're driving for a second. He just, it was this amazing moment where he just went like that and it was like, it was incredible. It was incredible. He, he, it was amazing. That's, that's an incredible, it's an incredible opportunity And, and, and tall and, um, Alana Warnick and Simran Sethi and Grace Wu, who was in my first meeting on NBC, but now she does casting, had a casting for the, like all these people who my agents now who heard it and then we didn't sell it. And then, but like, it's been an incredible support of, of people, David Schwimmer reaching out and wanting to, it's just been this amazing ride of, to, to that. Your biggest disappointment in your career besides this podcast. Um, Wow, it's a tough. It's all drops off after that. Uh, um, it's I don't have a disappointment. It's a journey. I've had so many failures. We didn't talk about those today. Should we? T- I mean, the pilot sucked. That first pilot, I it didn't go anywhere, but it led to me writing. So, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I couldn't save up all night. I tried to save up all night. Couldn't do that. I tried to. Uh, Traffic Light was the greatest show I've ever worked on, and I couldn't get that. I wanted to get Bob Fisher a second season so badly, but there's other factors other than what you're doing. But I look at all those things now as this marathon. You know, I've lost a lot of sprints along the way, but the marathon of all of this has been incredible. Yeah. So last question is, what advice would you give to a a comedian starting out that 
wants to have a fruitful career and wants to be successful and what advice would you give to somebody who wasn't a comedian who's just a a writer in the business who wants to start in the business somewhere wants to get their foot in the door and doesn't have the stand-up background but just wants to get there and get to the point where you are uh let me answer the second question first because the second answer is better oh and uh the the writer the cool thing about writing is you can be a writer right now you can get up tomorrow morning and be a writer you can be a writer it turns out you can write checks no, you can write a script. Every Everything I'm doing now, you can do. You can't necessarily get paid for it, and it may not be shot, but that experience of writing a Raymond spec about, I got a girl's phone number using my wife's pen, you write that. And then one day, it hopefully will be a story to another show you're working on. Write every day. Because if you want to be a writer, it turns out you can be. Um, you know, My buddy Alex here is a writer. He writes every day. He writes every single day. And he gets up and he does it. And he has to do other things to pay for milk. Um, but he's a writer. And you and, have, and yeah. Alex, I want to share something with you that's going to blow you away. And it's probably going to put a lot of pressure on you and put a lot of pressure on this young man, maybe. I was uh, on the Whitney show, one of the executive producers on the show. And um, one day, you know, you just get, sometimes you go to the table reads and you're not paying it. You, you, you know, there's so many things happening on a show, whatever. And, and as a manager, when you're producing, sometimes you're going back and forth. And I remember getting to the table read and I was sort of rushing there and I got there and, um, I look at the script and, and the name looks familiar on the script, but it's like, I just, you know, I'm not really thinking about it, whatever. And then the director starts and the producers start the table read and they say, before we go, uh, the script is written by this person and everybody applauds. And I look and it was Whitney's assistant the previous year. And here she was the second year of the show and she wrote an episode of the show and it was amazing. Yeah. And I, I, I it, it let me know that. You know, anything is possible from anywhere, sure. and you're a great example. My, my assistant on Let It Go was a writer's assistant on Bent, a show I worked on before that, and then he was a staff writer on Up All Night with us, and now he's working on Greg Garcia's new show. And he worked he worked on he, he on Growing Up Fisher. He, he was amazing on that. Incredible, yeah. So advice for a comedian starting out who wants to have the kind of career that you have. This is the global advice. I think this can apply to the accountant or whoever, whatever the Lewis Schaefer accountant guy. No. Um, uh, Should we call him? Should we call him right after this? Let's call him right after this. (laughs) Sure. Um, So. We'll send him a coaster. I, um, not mine. I'm keeping those. Those are eBay. Um, So I, um, I got, I was at a college show and at college show, I used to do like 70 minutes of, I'd do 70 minutes. But at around 50 minutes, I'd be like, what else do I joke about? <laughs> and so I would say to the audience, hey, anyone have any questions? And I'd open up to questions. And for me, it did two things. One, it let me take a second to remember what other jokes I want to do. But also this, after being with them for 50 minutes, it was this amazing opportunity to give them all of the power and then try to take it back as fast as possible. And the questions, some of them were just annoying, like not annoying, but just the same 12 questions. But then every so often you'd get an unusual question. And one night on stage, somebody said to me, um, what is the secret to success? And I said, the secret to success is carefully defining success. Because 
if I say that the secret to success, if I'm saying that for me to be successful, I have to be paid a million dollars to do stand-up comedy and be famous, then I didn't do it tonight. But if I got to do my art and got paid to do my art, then I'm successful. And I don't even know about the paid part. Like you think about why, what's your secret to what's, what's your goal here? If you can do your art and sustain yourself doing your art, then you were successful. I don't think, um, I didn't say to you that the show is gratifying because that person reviewed it or that thing happened. It was gratifying because the people around me who matter saw it and helped me make it. DJ, this has been like so unbelievable. I think you've made a difference to a lot of people. Uh, you've shown that you can go from just a, a young teenager who wants to be a comic who's performing in between two bands yes, to going up to the biggest festival in the world and being a standout to getting a deal for your own show to meeting Lorne Michaels and writing on one of his productions to creating your own show again when your agent said no it can't happen meeting Dr. Cosby incredible and creating a love letter for your family and having them watch it I mean you are like um uh, living the American dream as an artist in this country. And I am honored that you came here. I'm grateful because I, I wanted you here because I wanted people to know that it can happen and it will happen. And you're an example of that. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Greg. Good luck with the show. So listen, everybody, you've been listening to the Industry Standard with uh, me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.